0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 and then from chapter 10 verses 28 to 39. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay,
1: if you've been with us for the last couple months then you know that we're working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And what we've been saying is that this book describes a work of rebuilding. It's a work of renewal. It's a work of revival. And for those familiar with Nehemiah, when you think about the rebuilding going on, it's it's likely that you think about the wall, right? But as we've pointed out already, the wall was finished in chapter 6. Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. So God has to be up to a little bit more than just the infrastructure of a building project. No, what we've been saying is that God has leveraged this construction project of the wall to ultimately rebuild and renew and revive his people. The wall was simply a pointer to the deeper work God is doing in the community of people that are marked by his covenant name. And this week, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to see that part of this revival work that God is doing is a renewed desire in the people to, quote, walk in God's laws. We see that in verse 29. But what we're also going to see is that we're just not particularly good at that. So we need God's help. And so that's my main point this morning. God's renewal requires obedience. And obedience requires requires God's help. God's renewal requires obedience, and obedience requires God's help. And I'm going to try to unpack that for us this morning in three points. The first point is this, promising to obey. We're just going to kind of work through the text, and the people are promising to obey. Studying through a text like Nehemiah, in only chunks at a time, is often going to be really helpful to us, right? Because we we can kind of pause, and we can linger on things for a little bit, Their context is very different from ours, so we can begin to unpack it and try to understand the context that Nehemiah is in, and then we can also take the time to try to apply it appropriately to our own lives. This week, however, is one of those instances when going through the text in smaller portions actually provides to us a distinct challenge, right? Look at chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all what? If you were here last week, then you know that the book of Nehemiah 9 was a corporate prayer of confession. The people were facing the facts of their sins and the sins of their fathers. And they were crying out to God for grace and mercy. And because God is who he says he is, what we saw is that when they cry out to God for mercy, he gives them mercy. And we pointed out that the last couple of weeks, what we've been seeing is this, that that's an actually a well-documented marker in true revivals of God's people all throughout history. An awareness of sin that causes them, it compels them to cry out to God for mercy because they see how far, how far short they've fallen. And 938 picks up right where we left off last week, immediately following it, and it takes the next logical step. They say, because God is gracious and merciful and kind to them, the people then recommit themselves to following God in the ways that they're supposed to. This is just what happens when we confess our sin. We say, we're not going to do it again. And so they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant. Okay, well, what's a covenant? Theologian um, Tom Schreiner puts it like this. He says, a covenant is a chosen relationship— in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Now, there are various types of covenants in scripture, but this definition holds true regardless. And so, really, what's, what's happening right now is that the people are recommitting to the covenant that they broke. The covenant, and so this is a covenant re- renewal ceremony. They're recommitting to the covenant that they broke, the, the one that God made with Israel through Moses when he brought them out of oppression and bondage in Egypt. And what we see is that everybody is included in this covenant, right? We see that through the names and the families listed. That's the part that we didn't read. But we also see that as well when when Nehemiah just states that this involves, quote, all who have knowledge and understanding in verse 28. Nehemiah is saying that this ranges from the oldest Israelite, who saw the former glory of the temple and was taken into exile, all the way down now to the, to the youngest person that's returned and understands what's going on. This is everybody's involved in this covenant renewal. And it's from here that we can then begin to understand the promises of obedience that the people are making. See, God, he kept his end of the covenant. Today, when you get home, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. When you get home, go read Deuteronomy 28. In that chapter, God describes the blessings and the curses that come from the covenant. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And what you're going to see is that when they walked in God's law, they experienced the blessings that he describes. But when they disobeyed God's law, they experienced the cursings he described. God never does anything that he didn't promise he was going to do. And the returned exiles are now making this covenant recommitment, and they're distinctly aware of this, right? They know all too well the reality of the curses that come from disobedience. And so in verse 29, they make the general promise of recommitment, the general recommitment to obedience. And that and, and they say is that they say, We're going to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And so that's the overarching promise of obedience that they're making right now. They're going to keep the whole law. And that leads us to point number two. Promising particular obedience. See, in verse 29, the people are committing themselves to the whole law. Uh, but they don't write out the whole law. That's not what's in chapter 9. That's not the whole thing. Uh, they only call out a few specific things. And with that, we need to understand that they're not, uh, they're not committing only to these things. They're just saying that these are areas that we need to articulate. These are areas of emphasis for us. We need to call these out in particular. And, and that makes sense to us, right? When, when, For instance, when I write, I tend to use too many commas. I use way too many commas. If I feel like there might even be a hint of a pause in a sentence, I'm going to throw a comma in it. I can't help myself. But if I were to say to you, I'm going to commit myself to the proper rules of writing, I'm not going to use too many commas, you'd understand that I'm committing myself to all the rules. I want to be a good writer. I want to write well. But I know that I make a lot of mistakes in this one particular area, and so I'm going to focus on it. And that's what Israel's doing here. They know they broke the whole law, but I'd argue that these are areas that they feel they made fundamental mistakes. And so they're going to call them out by name when they're recommitting to the whole thing. And so what we see is that what follows in the text is three, we can can bulk them into three will not statements. These are three areas that they're saying, we will not do these things. Look at verse 30. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And so first what we see is that they're, they're saying, we will not marry outside of Israel. We won't intermarry with the nations. And this command is found in Exodus 34. And let's just be honest, to our 21st century Western ears, it feels a little weird, right? Like, why would, why would, not, why would God not want his people to marry across ethnic lines? But what we need to know here, and, and this is, I'm, I'm stealing this, Other, others have put it this way, and I'm just using it um, God's commands around marriage aren't racist, but religious. That means that, that his purpose here isn't for the purity of the people's bloodline, but the purity of the people's worship. God's concern is that marrying non Israelites will cause the people to go after false gods, the false gods of the people that they're marrying. And he knows it's going to cause them to stray away from him. Right? Even Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. In 1 Kings, it says when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord our God. It honestly causes us to put a big question mark on Solomon's life. He had all these wives from different peoples who served different gods, and they turned him away from the one true God. Why is this man to ever live? Do we think we're better? And so the principle of the command, though, it's simple enough, right? No one draws closer to God by marrying someone who doesn't believe in him. And the Apostle Paul, he's going to pick this up in his letters to the Corinthians as well when he tells Christians that they're not to marry other Christians. And so this is pretty consistent biblical guidance across covenants and testaments, that God's people are to marry within God's people. And so Israel is saying, we didn't do this very well, and we're going to prioritize obedience here. And so that's the first will not. Now look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. All right, so this second will not statement has to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the fourth command of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. Um, and of the Ten Commandments, it's the longest, which should tell us something about its importance. Um, and in the, in the command, God is essentially telling his people that may, they must honor their design as created dependent beings. They must trust that even though they're going to give up a day of labor, the Sabbath, they're going to rest for one day a week, God is their provider. And he will give his people all that they need. And this, this honestly may not seem that odd to you. Although I think we're more challenged by this than we tend to believe. But, but it may not seem that odd to you. Because um, most of us have grown up in a world where we work for five days a week and then we get a two-day weekend. And so maybe you're saying, man, God seems a little strict here only giving his people one day off. What's going on there? But we have to remember that this was an agricultural society. And for a farmer to give up a day could potentially be the difference between a good yield and a bad yield for a season. We're not talking about the potential from one day's overtime pay that we lost. We're talking about whether or not there's going to be food on the table, a roof over our heads, whether or not I'm going to have clothes for my kids. And so in this context, the Sabbath for these these folks, and I would argue that it's still for us, this is an act of sheer faith. Faith that God is going to provide for me despite what my circumstances are telling me. And so that's, that's the basis of the second will not statement. But from what we can see here, it seems that in the past, the people had found what they thought was a loophole, right? They weren't working on the Sabbath, but they were allowing others to do it. They were allowing them to come in and sell to them, allowing them to violate the command, while they could say, well, we aren't violating it. It's as if they were saying, well, technically, I'm not sinning. I'm I'm not responsible for them over there. What they do is their own business, but technically, I'm okay. See, they were keeping the rule of the law, but they were violating the spirit of the law. And to add to that, they, they weren't giving the land the rest in the seventh year that it was supposed to get, and that's a, that's a law in Leviticus 25. And what's interesting is that the Bible literally cites this as a, one, of the, one of the reasons that they were in exile. 2 Chronicles 36 says, God took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. God cares deeply about his people And the world that he's created. And what we see here is that the people had violated both by not following the Sabbath. And so that's the second will not statement. The last will not statement is actually found in the final verse of our text. And I know this is a lot of information right now, but um, this kind of serves as a summary statement. Uh, Verses 32 through 39. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. But they say in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, when Nehemiah speaks of neglect here, you may have noticed, but he's mostly referring to money. And I can just feel the air go out of the sanctuary as soon as I mention that, right? Pastor's talking about money. Didn't we already do the call to give? Is he going to do it again? Let's just get something out of the way. Something, something that we both know, but let's just state it. I earn my living through your generosity. The church staff, we earn our living through your generosity. The ministry moves forward here in large part due to your God-inspired, cheerful, sacrificial, obedient generosity. I know that. You know that. We've got it out of the way. Now we can talk about money. Now, there's a lot of ways that Nehemiah speaks about money here, or or at least the things that money is going to be used to buy in order to lead the people in worship. He talks about the temple tax in verse 32, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And then he goes on to state what that tax would be used for, right? He says, the showbread, the offerings, the Sabbath, the holy things, which I, I kind of imagine to be just like a, a, an ancient miscellaneous budget line. Of like, we don't know where to put this. It's a, it's a holy thing. So we're just going to throw it there. So it's the temple tax. And then he goes on to the principle of first fruits in verses 35 through 37. And we'll come back to that one in a bit. Um, and, of course, the tithe and its regulations for collection, and the tithe would have been money that was given to pay for the needs of the Levites and the priests. Um, this was so that they didn't have to go work a side job in order to uh, make ends meet for their family and then still come back and lead the people in worship week in and week out. And this, all of this, it culminates in the statement, we will not neglect the house of our God. But the weightedness of the text is interesting. Interesting. This will not statement essentially gets eight verses of explanation. The other two got one each. One commentator puts it like this. He says, before the exile, the temple had too often been a mere talisman. And its well-patronized activities a sedative for the conscience. Now, the temptation was the opposite. To grudge the expense of it all. And so, all three will not statements, they do have a particular way that they're reflecting on the past. And they're viewing things that they did wrong and things that they want to emphasize and change going forward. But this one seems to have a unique emphasis on challenges that they expect to face going forward. Right? Kidner's saying that faith used to be assumed and everyone was engaged. It was just a cultural norm. They didn't have to worry too much about the ministers being cared for or the ministry taking place because everyone was involved. And the temple and its ministers, they were just very well supplied. It was just something that the culture did. They funded religious worship, which comes with its own challenges. Don't get me wrong. But Israel, and I think this is what Kidner's pointing out to us. He's saying Israel is at a decision point. Right? Right? Because of how small they now are after returning from exile and because they are no longer a sovereign geopolitical entity, right? There's an occupying government that they're under. They have to really wholeheartedly commit to the faith because the ministry won't be able to continue without their wholehearted commitment. And that probably hits us a little too close to home, huh? See, some of us probably need to hear that for our own day. The ministry of which you enjoy the benefits may not be able to continue if you don't fully commit to contributing to it. I'll let you take that one home and chew on it. I'm not going to belabor that point anymore. Um, But for Israel, if you read the post-exilic prophets, the, the prophets that prophesied after they came back, Um, from exile. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This is a persistent theme of half measures. Instead of the first fruits that are promised here, the first fruits they're committing themselves to, the consistent theme of them offering these half measures uh, shows itself in these prophets. See, see, the people are making their promise here because they know their temptation. But spoiler alert, they're going to fail again. See, they know uh, that they're not able to actually obey the promises that they're making. And Malachi fills this out for us very helpfully in Malachi chapter 1 when he says, Will you offer blind animals in sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? He goes on to say, you wouldn't even be able to present these things to your civic leaders. What makes you think that it's okay to give God your flawed, half-hearted leftovers? Right? Something that you'd be embarrassed to give at a white elephant gift exchange. The principle of first fruits is out the window very quickly. The people are promising to give their best, but they won't. They're promising to be committed, but they'll quickly fall into being half in and half out. Back uh, to practicing their faith as nothing more than a, just a mere ritual. It's just something that they do. This is where we go on Sunday. This is what I call myself. This is just what I do. But it's not the overarching truth that guides their life. And this is why I believe this statement gets eight verses because it gets to the very heart of what worship is amongst God's people. See, your thoughts about straying because of who you marry, your concerns about keeping the Sabbath, your personal promises to obey and to commit to the change that you've promised yourself that you're going to make, they mean nothing if the worship of God is not the fundamental principle of your life, if that's not what drives the whole thing. If you're only willing to be half in and half out, why does it matter if you observe these other things? You're already half in and half out. Why are you worried about being drawn away? See, if we're honest, like Israel, we know that we make promises that in our own strength, we won't keep. And the problem isn't the promises themselves but the people that are promising to keep them. And that leads us to point number three, the better promises of God. As I've been pointing out, we see a lot of similarities. You've probably seen that. We see a lot of similarities between us and Israel. But we need to understand that we're similar, but not the same. See, this can really be considered part two of the sermon from last week, because like I said, it follows immediately And last week, we saw that after studying and hearing God's law, it brought the Israelites to a place of honest confession and repentance. And we did that last week too, right? We said that this is the natural rhythm of the Christian life. We were honest with God about our sin, and we found healing in his grace and mercy. And I would be willing to bet that many of us, we we just naturally fulfilled Nehemiah 10 that day. Right? Without even knowing it, we just naturally did it because it's what flows from confession, a commitment to change. <clears throat> but we we were probably up here on the carpets or, or maybe after service, and we told God, This is the last time, I promise. I'm really gonna change this time. This time it's gonna be different. Like the Israelites, we probably identified particular areas that we're prone to disobeying. And maybe you set up personal account- accountability or, or, or you made a plan to be faithful or whatever it is. But let's just be honest. Like Israel, it's only a matter of time until in your own strength, you're going to fail again. You may have already done the thing that you promised just a week ago, I'll never do it again. It was the last time, I swear. What do we do when we break our promises again? What do we do when we break our end of the bargain We've recommitted ourselves to the covenant, but we broke it. We broke it again. What do we do? See, the fundamental difference, there's a lot of differences between us and Israel, but the fundamental difference between us and the Israelites is the basis for our promises. See, there's a reason that the text focuses on the people supplying for the needs of the ministry. We pointed out the principle of first fruits earlier, and that's what they're doing with their first fruits. They're supplying the needs. But the practical purpose was for the sacrifices. See, the people knew that even though they were promising to be faithful here, they wouldn't. They're not dumb. They knew they were going to fall again, they knew they were going to sin. And they also knew that there was going to need to be something that would atone for their sin. And we, like the Israelites, we know that we need something, or better yet, someone, to take our sins away. See, we don't want to just confess our sin. We need someone to remove it. We're similar, but we're not the same. Unlike Israel, we don't have to offer a sacrifice for sin continually because Jesus has been sacrificed once and for all. The Sunday school answer is still the right answer. See, Jesus was the temple of God on earth. He was God's very presence walking amidst his people. He didn't neglect the house of his God, but he tended to it perfectly. He gave nothing but his best. His whole life was lived in a giving of his first fruits. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he tells the Father, I have accomplished everything that you gave me to do. I've done it all. I have not failed one time. He perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses, the commandments, the rules, and the statutes. Everything that Israel was promising to obey here, he obeyed perfectly. And he was crucified for it. Instead of receiving the promised covenant blessings for obedience that you're going to read about back in Deuteronomy 28, he received the full weight of the covenant curses for disobedience. Why? So that by faith, you and I, we could have relationship with the Father that he has. The author of Hebrews says it like this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrifices of Israel only pointed to the true and full sacrifice for sins that was coming in Jesus. The sacrifice that the people knew that they needed, but they didn't know exactly where it was going to come from. His perfect, spotless life was the sacrifice that actually removes the sin. And no more can be added to it, right? The author of Hebrews says he sat down. The work is done. We sat down when we're finished with things. See, Jesus kept all the promises perfectly, yet took our judgment once so that we who break all of his promises, all all of our promises continually could receive his blessing forever. And by faith in his finished work, his once and for all sacrifice, we are actually now able to keep our promises. Game changer. See, we're similar, but we're not the same. I, I don't know if we're as amazed by this as we should be. Jesus told his disciples that it's better that he should go so that the helper would come. He's saying so that he could send his spirit. And Paul tells us that when we're walking by faith in Christ, in Romans 8, when we're walking in the spirit, the righteous requirements of the law are actually able to be fulfilled by us. We actually can obey. We can obey as we desire to. We have a right desire, and we actually have the ability to fulfill it now. When we confess and commit to change, uh, we don't have to make empty promises. We can keep them with God helping us. Important note with God helping us. Friends, this is good news. This allows us to confess boldly, regularly. It allows us to commit ourselves again and again to Christ and fight hard in God's strength to live holy lives. We need to fight to live our holy lives. And so as we desperately desire to walk in obedience to God's law, let's do so by faith. That God will enable us to do the very thing that we desire to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.